Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. We are finishing up our study of Habakkuk verse by verse tonight, and we finished our last message this morning. You have a Bible, why don't you turn to Habakkuk? I'm not Habakkuk. How about Haggai? Haggai chapter 2. That's what happens when you get old. The people of God... I've heard the first prophecy in chapter 1 delivered to them by the prophet Haggai about their apathetic and indifference in terms of building the house of God, being part of that work that he had brought them back. While at the same time they were living very luxurious, building their own lavish houses. And um, this this doesn't seem to be anything that's um, strange in terms of the history of the people of God. Jeremiah called them out on the same thing. And um, it's not um, something that's peculiar to any specific generation. It is to all of us who live in this world. We are human. We have sin nature. We have the world that tugs on us. We have the world that tells us that we can have everything right now. We have the world that causes us to compare ourselves to one another and to covet other people's things and to be unsatisfied with what we have because somehow we've been convinced that we deserve so much more because we are such great people. Now, I don't know where we get all that information, but um, they must be looking at another world, not this one. And so that's always the, um, the challenge for every believer. Daniel had that same challenge. Moses had the same challenge. Um, All of us do. And so they have repented. And now God is going to deal with their commitment to the work of God here in chapter 2. Verse 1 through 9, we have the people, and they are exhorted by God to not compare his past work with the present work that he's doing. He says, In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, So here, the second prophecy in verse 1 is received. The date now is October the 21st. Again, this is 520 B.C. in the year Darius um, during this period. And this was during the Feast of Tabernacles. From 15 to the 22nd of October is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, the dates will change at times because the Jewish calendar is different. And um, it has a religious calendar and a a civil calendar. And so they'll change uh, the dates, how it falls. Um, If you look to the Bible, the uh, Bible follows a 30-day month, uh, uh, um, 360-day year, not the 365, the Gregorian calendar. And so the prophecies of Daniel are based upon that, the seventh-day week of Daniel. Um, During this um, month, again, you have um, the Feast um, of Trumpets, announcing the Holy Month on the 1st. You have Yom Kippur on the 10th. 
the Day of Atonement, the holiest day of the year for Israel. You have the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, 15th to the 22nd. The first day and the last day were holy convocations, but there could be a Sabbath in between, so you could have three Sabbath days of convocation during that one week. Um, and we see that also when Jesus came in the last week that took place. Now, you remember that when Jesus was in Jerusalem on uh, the seventh chapter of John, it was during that uh, Feast of Tabernacles where they would um, um, go to the pool of, of, of Siloam and, and uh, they would draw water. Uh, from I'm sorry, from Gihon, they would come up to Siloam and they would pull water out and they would bring it before the uh, up the steps where we usually have a Bible study there uh, where you on the side of the east gate. And we have a Bible study when we go over there. It was there that um, they would come and pour the water out to demonstrate God's faithfulness that he had been in the wilderness to provide water for them and everything else. And they would do this every day. And the last day, the eighth day, they would not do that to demonstrate that they were in the promised land. They no longer needed God to provide that for them. But it was on that day that John 7 tells that Jesus stood and cried out, If any man thirst, let him come unto me. In other words, God had brought them into the promised land. But they were living so far and distant from God. And they were spiritually dead, even though they were in the land and they had the law and you had the Pharisees, the scribes and all the ritual and everything. But he says, you are still uh, thirsty. And he was calling people to himself. And so, um, very special month. Now, this is 51 days from the first message, September the 1st of chapter 1, verse 1. And as we said this morning, the four messages comprise within a four-month period, a little less, because of the 30 days uh, measurement. Now, the reality of the present temple was um, not to be denied. The ones being addressed are the leaders, notice in verse 2, Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, of the kingly um, line of David, Joshua, the priestly line of Aaron, and those were two important things, the king and the priest. The king would depend on the Lord. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17, he was to write a book of the law all by himself so that he might read it day and night and meditate and not exalt himself against his brethren. Um, the priest would be the go-between, the mediator to intercede for man. And he would first have to offer sacrifice for himself as the book of Hebrews uh, comments. That's why... Um, they had to get new high priests because they would die. You'd have to get another one. And they would offer sacrifice themselves first so they're right with God. And then they would offer the sacrifice for the people that would come. And when he went in to offer the sacrifice, he was offering, he was representing the people before God. And then when he came out, he represented God to the people in the, in the words that he pronounced. And so the mediator, very, very important here, as they have come back to the land, they're offering sacrifices now. And that's the only way that uh, they had any connection with God. As God gave them the Levitical law and the uh, system of sacrifices so that the blood of the animals was a token for their atonement. And that um, it was a shadow and symbols of things to come prophetic of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that would die for the sins of the world. 
Now, the national life of Israel was centered around the temple, the house of God. And that's why in God's judgment, he allowed the temple of Solomon to be totally sacked and burned to the ground. You remember in Jeremiah chapter 7, God sent Jeremiah to the temple. And there at the temple door, he proclaimed, don't say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. And, you know, they were saying, well, you know, God won't destroy his temple. And as long as we're here, God said, and Jeremiah said, well, I'm gonna, he's going to destroy it. And they felt that because they were in possession of the temple of God, that that protected them. There's a lot of people that come to church and think that that will protect them from their lifestyle. It will not. Or because they give money or because they hang out with Christians or because whatever, you fill in the blank. It doesn't affect you at all. In fact, it makes you more culpable if you're not responding to the witness of those who are godly and who are praying for you and influencing you and making their lifestyle an example for you. But there's a lot of people that just love to hang out because they're comfortable and all that. And Herod was like that. Remember, he, he loved hearing John the Baptist. He felt real good. He really didn't want to take his head off, but, you know, his lust got the best of him. And um, he got moved by a sweet, wiggly little thing, and he got set up, and he ended up decapitating John. And... Uh, so it's important that you realize that your life has to be uh, the one that has meaning with the Lord, that you're coming because you want to walk with God, because you want to grow in God, and not simply because you want to be around the people of God for the benefit you can receive or the peace you can receive or the nice fellowship you can receive or, you know, the, the, the nice girls you can meet or whatever. You, you fill in the blank. People come to church for many, many different reasons, okay? And um, certainly, uh, the, the center of life for us is um, Jesus Christ. Um, this building is nothing. This building is just a building. We are the church of Jesus Christ. And this building, um, they can make an office space out of it. They can make whatever they want. You know, when we first started um, the Bible study, we, we, we held church in many different places and um, um, Masonic lodges, YMCA's, um, um, theaters, um, wherever we could. And the church meets in that building, but the building is nothing. And if people aren't seeking the Lord, really it's irrelevant that they gather. And many churches that they are gathering simply for activities or for uh, political reasons or for sociological reasons or whatever it is, and they put the label church, and they use Christian terms, but they don't, they don't study the word. They are not interested in transformation. They're more interested in just comfortable living and, you know, doing good works. And um, though there's nothing wrong with the good works, but that's not going to save you. And that doesn't please God. What pleases God is when he has our heart and that we are walking with him. We're growing in him, and that's the main thing. Now, God here, in verse 3, he says, Who has left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison to it? 
Is this not in your eyes as nothing? And so God acknowledges the inferior state of the temple in comparison to Solomon's temple. Not everybody that was there had been alive during um, the uh, reign of Solomon uh, in terms of um, uh, when the temple was up, not Solomon himself, but prior to the captivity. But there were a handful of people who at this time were, again, probably from anywhere late 50s to 70s, maybe in the 80s, that might have seen that. And he's asking them that direct question. You who have seen with your own eyes the beauty, the opulence, the, the, the wealth, the, just the Shekinah glory that was present with the Lord. And now here's this foundation that is very meager, very unattractive, if you will, in comparison. And God acknowledges the reality But the fact that he had now chastened them already and brought them back from the captivity and now he had brought them back into the land and that he had even used these uh, Cyrus to give all the vessels and everything and the permits and, and, and everything was a miracle in the hand of God and fulfilled prophecy. And so here, um, God demonstrates that it really is nothing compared to what previously they had seen. But this was a new start. Now they were right with God. And when people are right with God, then they can start building again. And then those things take meaning. But when you're not right with God as they were prior to captivity, though they had the glorious temple, it meant absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. God didn't want those who had seen Solomon's temple to put a damper on those who were rejoicing over the foundation laid, as we read in Ezra 3, 8 through 13. The young men were rejoicing. What an incredible accomplishment. They had come out of captivity. They laid the foundation. They're excited. And the old men are just all, you know, crying away, lamenting the lost beauty and all. But if you're not living for God, the beauty is irrelevant. The opulence is irrelevant. And there are so many people that glory in their facility. Look at our building. Look at all the facilities. Look how many acres we have. And look at, look at, and if if you're not walking with God, all of that is irrelevant. It means nothing. And so... Too often, old wineskins live in the past and despise the new work God wants to do. Now, the new work will always be in line with God's word. I say this because today there's a lot of people who are kind of rebuking us old geezers like myself, who've been around for about 40 years because they have a new sense of Idea what God wants to do, but much of what they're doing is contrary to Scripture. Redefining Christianity, the church and its nature, and the work of God. God will do new things, but it will always be according to His Word, ladies and gentlemen, never contrary to His Word. And it will always be based upon preaching of repentance from sin. 
And it always will be followed by teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book of the Word of God. Because the pastor is to give you the full counsel of God. Genesis to Revelation. That's the full counsel. Not just bits and pieces or favorite books or texts, but the whole thing. What God is doing today is superior to the past because it is the present work of God in reality, which points me to the future work of God. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He will tell Zechariah in chapter 4, verse 8 through 10. So I'm glad. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful to God for what he's did with us when we were young and knew nothing. <laughs> Amazed. I'm excited for what God wants to do now. And that I don't let the past hinder me. But always checking to make sure that if it is God or if it's just man's new ways that wants to be introduced and just put a label that it's God. Every generation can examine whether it's God or not by the word of God. And so that's our duty as Bereans being good, good Bereans, examining to find out if those things are so. Now... In verse 4 and 5, you have the command of God to depend and trust upon him. He says, Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you, do not fear. Now, this is not a suggestion. This is a command by God to depend and trust upon him. God told the leaders and the people to be strong. A repeated phrase that we find throughout um, the scriptures for the people of God. Um, Joshua 1.8, Nehemiah 8.10, Zechariah 4.6, and many, many, many others. God gives them the reason, notice, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. When, when he addressed them like that, they didn't have to worry about anything. He's never lost a battle. It's like the little child who's afraid at night and becomes scared because of the lightning or a shadow or something or a noise. And the mother or dad just walk in and they say, it's okay, I'm here. All of a sudden, poof, there's calm. Because like children, we're to look to the Lord and depend upon Him and to trust Him as we walk in obedience to Him. And He will be faithful. The promise was according to the covenant of Moses that He had made with them. That he would go before them, that he would protect them, that he would lead them, that he would guide them. That they would never lack, that they would never borrow, but they would lend to others. But if they begin to disobey, then all, all things would reverse. It would be just the opposite. He says his spirit remained among them. And they were not to fear in five. Because now God has chastened them. They've learned through the 70 years of captivity. And so this is the remnant that has come back. In verse 6 through 9, you have the setting up of the kingdom by God now. So he goes from the present um, to the future. He says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, 
Once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth and sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, and I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Now, notice here in verse 6, the Lord will shake heaven and earth, the seas and the dry land. Now, we dealt with that in depth two Sundays ago. Um, this text is quoted in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, in reference to Mount Sinai, when God spoke and shook the mountain, when Moses and the children of Israel were there. But the following verse of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, 27, um, he mentions um, the, the once more shaking. He says, yet once more indicating the removal of all those things that are being shaken as the things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. This is the shaking now in Hebrews twelve twenty seven that Haggai is talking about. He's going from the present all the way to the future, the great tribulation. When God's going to shake everything and only what can stand, can, can, can stand will end up standing. Those who depend on the Lord, those who trust the Lord. Now, if it is difficult for you and I to live for the Lord now, while it is the age of grace, how difficult do you think it would be for you to make it through the tribulation if you aren't taken in the rapture? You see, right now is the age of grace. And if the testings and the trials, the temptations, if they become difficult to you here, what would you do in the great tribulation? And so here he goes all the way to the tribulation period here. And um, the shaking here, there are many earthquakes that are pointed out in the book of Revelation 6, 12, and 13, 8, 5, 11, 13, and 16, 18 through 20. The city falls. The cities of the nations fall. Jerusalem's divided into three places. The last earthquake, there's not an island or a mountain found. Now, I, we've been in some pretty hairy earthquakes out here. Remember the Whittier earthquake when um, we just moved in here, October the 1st of... 86, in the year to the day, October 1st of 87, you had the Woody earthquake, and it shook everything, everything. Boy, there was a surplus of brick. All chimneys came down, everything. We used to have a little church, because this was where the Nazarene uh, church started. Its original little Gothic church was right there where the gym is. Beautiful little thing, and, and it got cracked, so we had to remove it and re-engineer and compact the soil, and then later we built the gym there. But um, um, earthquakes are pretty frightening, and um, but they can't. What we have experienced is nothing compared to what is coming during the Great Tribulation, and so he takes them all the way to the end. And in 7 there, he says, God will shake all the nations. This is the second coming, the battle of Armageddon. Once again, we mentioned the preview you find in Psalm 2, the actual account in, in Revelation 19, verse 15 
through 19, where Jesus returns with a sharp two-edged sword coming forth from his mouth on a white horse, and we follow him. There will be an attack on Israel by Russia, and God will destroy five-sixths of that invading army, according to the old King James Version in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You find that in Ezekiel 39.9, when those weapons will be used for seven years for fuel. So putting two and two together, when God puts the hooks in Russia's jaws, Ezekiel 38 and 39, both chapters, they go together. He draws them. And they attack Israel, and God destroys five-sixths of that army. All the weapons will be collected, and they will be used for fuel for seven years. That's key, because that means that the rapture of the church happens simultaneously as the Antichrist also appears in a simultaneity while this attack is going on. It's seven years to the day. So all three things have to happen at the same time. All right? Again, Ezekiel 39.9 tells you about the burning of those weapons for fuel. So this battle of Russia is at the beginning of the tribulation that initiates the tribulation with simultaneous event of the rapture and the appearance of the Antichrist. The battle of Armageddon is at the end of the seven years and the second coming. Don't confuse the two. Many do. Now, still in seven, notice the nations shall come to the desire of the nations. They're all in capital letters. Many take the desire of the nations um, to refer to the Messiah. Um, this has been the Jewish accepted interpretation and the most commonly believed and accepted by most commentators. But a question has to be asked in terms of the context here. The Messiah has never been the desire of all nations. Not before he came. Not even when he returns. During the millennial kingdom, there will be sin and there will also be death. During the millennial kingdom, Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. Nations will have to come to Jerusalem once a year for the Feast of Tabernacles, or they will receive no rain. And so I don't think we can categorize that all the nations um, are the desire, that Jesus is the desire of all the nations. Neither now, neither before, nor during the millennial kingdom. Now, the late J. Vernon McGee took this to refer the desire of the nations to be what's in verse 8. The silver and the gold. And I kind of agree with him because of the context. And there are others who go along with this. Uh, but again, I give you both of them. It's not going to send you to hell one way or the other. You make your decision, study it. Um, the word desire is singular and the word come is plural. So they interpret it to mean the desire of the nations for the silver and the gold. Think of the context. You've got this unfinished, very rustic, unattractive foundation of the temple in contrast to the old Solomon's where the gold, the silver, and all was, right? The desire 
is the gold and the silver in the context. It fits better. It's interesting that the Gentiles will bring their riches to Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. The Gentiles will serve the Jew. Isaiah 60 verse 5 is one of the verses. Um, if you were with us in our study of the millennial kingdom, the series, uh, we went through all those things. If you've never gone through it, get the series. It's very important. There's more material in the millennial kingdom than anything else, and nobody teaches on it. It's important that you understand it. It's so important that God gave us eight chapters of the millennial temple, Ezekiel 40 to 48. That's the millennial temple, okay? Now, God is going to fill the temple of the kingdom with glory, says the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven here in verse 7. Jesus came the first time in inferior glory, having divested himself of his glory. In Philippians 2, it tells us, verse 5 on down. He took on flesh. And yet, as he walked through Herod's temple, which really is the Rubabel's temple, there's only been two temples, I said this morning, Solomon's and Zerubbabel's. Herod's temple was just an expansion and beautification of Zerubbabel's temple. He expanded the Temple Mount. Some of you have been with us to Jerusalem. We go down into the tunnel. We go along the western wall, the Wailing Wall, and we see some of those massive stones that Herod so brilliantly put together to expand uh, and made it a, a, a plateau on top so that they could expand the temple area and everything. Incredible. But it's still only two temples, Solomon and Zerubbabel's. And then as Jesus walked in it, of course, that glory was superior to the glory that was uh, of Solomon's temple because that was God himself. Now, the glory of God, Shekinah glory was in Solomon's, but God came down in flesh and walked among men. Jesus will return in great glory with his angels and the church to set up the kingdom in the second coming. And Jesus will be the very glory of the millennial temple. The wealth completely belongs to God in verse 8. All the silver and gold is mine. In fact, he paves heaven with the streets with gold. <laughs> the new heaven. There's no big deal to God. The glory of the kingdom temple is also accompanied with the peace of Jerusalem. Notice that. He is present. Nobody will get away with anything. He rules with a rod of iron, and he will crack their heads like a pot, he says. Now we are glorified. We rule with him glorified. We don't have to go through repopulation, through temptations. We are glorified state as he is. It's the people who have not taken the mark of the beast who have survived the tribulation, who are allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom, that then they repopulate, they marry, they die, and they have to accept the Lord like everyone today has to. We're ruling and reigning with Jesus. It's after the thousand-year reign when Satan has lost the last rebellion, then there's a white throne judgment, and everybody's judged who has rejected Jesus, and Satan is caster in hell and Tartarus and all of that stuff. And then there's the new heaven and the new earth. Then is when there will be no tears. 
No more hunger, no nothing, no more pain. Because during the millennial kingdom, not for us, there's no pain, nothing. But for those who are in the millennial, there's sin. And when there's sin, there's always death. Okay? That was introduced by Adam. Romans 5, 12. Very, very clear. So, the latter temple, the one in the millennial, will excel all the former glories of Solomon's and even Zerubbabel's and even the expansion and beautification by Herod because Jesus himself will be there. And that temple is quite amazing. We went through it completely, just uh, the whole of chapters. It's amazing. This place refers to Jerusalem. God will give peace. The Lord of hosts is doing all this. It's mentioned four times in verse 6 through 9, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. Now in verse 10 through 14, we have the reproof of God to the people for their unholiness. In verse 10, he says, On the 24th day of the month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Haggai, the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the, uh, in the fold of a garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, No. And Haggai say, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these. Will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Now, this is the third prophecy in verse 10. December the 24th, 520 B.C. Two months and 23 days after the second message. Three months and 23 days after the first the law of holiness and ceremonial purity here is dealt with. If you go to, Num to Leviticus chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 22, Numbers 19, those will give you some passages when God deals with all that uh, ceremonial defilement and cleanliness that they would have to go through the ritual. Now, in verse 12, notice, will someone be holy if he touches something common so you take something holy it touches something common will it make it holy by touching it the answer is no each person must seek and walk in holiness themselves you do not become holy by hanging out or hanging around people who are living a holy life it doesn't make you holy any more than a virgin does not transfer her virginity to a non-virgin. It doesn't happen. Will something be defiled, is the second question, by a dead body? Will it defile something if it touches it? Yes, verse 13 says. It is much easier to become defiled then clean, unholiness is more contagious than holiness. 
holiness must be appropriated by God to the individual through repentance of sins. It isn't acquired by works or anything else. It's much easier to become defiled than clean. It's simple. The godly person that hangs out with those that are not will begin to be defiled mentally first and sooner or later will become like them. You remember being in the world? Do you remember when you were sweet and innocent? And all of a sudden you started getting into your teens or maybe earlier? And you started hanging around little Johnny? Or slick Susie? And they started introducing you to things. They started defiling you mentally and challenging your conscience and your heart. And if you didn't make a clean break and deny that, you get sucked in. And though you haven't committed those things that they do, you've already contemplated in your mind and your heart. Jesus said, if a man looks upon a woman with lust, he's committed adultery already. Now, there is a vast difference between sin before God and sin before man. God sees my heart, and if I lust, then he charges me with that sin that I must confess. But if I commit literal adultery, there's a far worse consequence. Because now, I've destroyed two lives. Okay? So sometimes people play games. One pastor one time um, had committed adultery against his wife and we're talking. And um, he says, well, you know, Jesus said, if you lust, you're guilty of it. So what's the difference? And I stood up or sat up real straight up and I said his name. And I said, let me ask you a question. Would you rather I lust after your wife or have sex with your wife? I said, don't play games with God. There's a big difference. Okay? And so we have to be real careful. They don't become wise in our own eyes, deceiving ourselves. The entire law, the book of Leviticus, centers on holiness. You have key words, key phrases. The word holy is found 83 times and 131 times with its cognate words. The words clean and unclean with cognates in contrast 186 times. The word atonement about 48 times or so. The Lord said to Aaron and his sons, to Moses and Aaron and to Moses about 62 times about holiness. You shall be holy. I, the Lord your God, am holy. I am the Lord, he says. The word blood appears 93 times in Leviticus, the atonement. The word atonement, 52 times. The words offering and sacrifices, 91 times. The key verse to the Levitical book is related to the life of the flesh that was given as an atonement upon the altar in Leviticus 17, 11, and 14. Without blood, there is no remission of sins. 
what should we say about the New Testament that constantly exhorts us to live holy and to be sanctified, to come out from among them. 1 Corinthians 3, 17, 6, 17 through 19. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 3, that we shouldn't defraud our brother sexually or our sister as we used to do in the world. 2 Peter 3, 11, and many, many others. Now, before we were in Christ, we had no capacity for this. We didn't have a desire for this. When I was growing up and I went to the drive-in, I, I wasn't interested in reading a Bible with my girlfriend. That wasn't what was on my mind. But now that you're a Christian, now your desires are different. But you still have sin nature, so you don't put yourself in positions where you're going to tempt yourself or others. For God is the one who sees everything, and we have to be careful. The um, prophet Haggai in verse 14 makes the particular application now to the people of God of this principle of contamination. He says, Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hand, and what they offer there is unclean. So the people in the nation are seen as defiled by God. They have a, he doesn't accept their work of their hand. They're going through motions and just through um, mechanical movements. He doesn't accept their offering. This principle of holy living is so important to God because he's holy. In verse 15 through 19, you have the declaration of God to bless the people in view of now their repentance. In 15, he says, And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before the stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephods, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight and with mildew and hail in all the labors of your hand. Yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. Remember Amos? He said the same thing. Like I, I didn't give you rain. I, I rained over there. You went over and got some more. I shut it off. I went over there. Then you went over there. So in other words, you, you didn't pay attention to my cry for you to repent. Verse 18 says, Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. And so... Having made the application in verse 14, the declaration of God to bless the people now by their repentance. And he marks a line of demarcation. God challenged them to mark the meager harvest and the blessings prior to the work in verse 15. 
Consider the lack of blessing prior to the foundation of the temple. In verse 15, he makes that clear. You go back to chapter um, 2, verse 16 through 17, and also chapter 1, 5 um, through um, 7, I believe, or 8 there. God was starting a new work, a new period. God challenged, he says, challenge me. Mark me if I won't keep my word. Verses 18 and 19, consider from the foundation of the temple. The date of this prophecy is December 24th again, as uh, will be the last one in verse 20. Two in one day. God declared his divine initiation to bless their obedience through their repentance and proclaim the period of divine transition from meager living to abundant living. Now, Jesus said he came to give his life a life more abundantly, right? You and I are the only ones that turn off the tap to abundance. Have you ever been driving down the freeway on your cell phone? And you go through a hole and you drop your party like a bad habit. That's what happens when sin comes into my life. I'm walking with God and sin comes in. There's no communication. I'm talking. But he's not listening. Not that he can't hear me. He's just not listening. It's not until I confess my sin that brings me back into fellowship. 1 John 1, 9 and 1 John 2, 1. Very clear. My little children, I write these things that you do not practice sin. And when you stumble and fall, yet Jesus Christ is righteous to make intercession for you. He's the lawyer for the defense. But as I told you often, he's a weird lawyer. He only takes guilty pleas. If you admit you're guilty, he can get you off. If you claim innocence or you want a plea bargain, doesn't even listen to you. He's a great lawyer. Never lost a case. Never. And so in 20 to 23, you have the promise to Zerubbabel in the last days. This is the fourth and last prophecy received. It came the same day, the 24th of December, 520. And in 20 says, and we did an in-depth study this morning. You can get that. I'm not going to belabor it. Verse 20 to 23. And 20 says, and again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overthrow the chariots and those who ride on them. The horses and the riders shall come down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Verse 21 to 23, the nature of the message is the last days prior to the kingdom. The message addressed to Zerubbabel there in 21, the time of the great tribulation is very clear there in 21 and 22. Certainly the fall of the Persian Empire through the Roman Empire is implied, um, but we're look, he's going to the last days. Uh, the time of the Gentiles goes from the head of gold, Babylon, to the ten toes. And uh, certainly from the head of gold to the legs of iron um, is before the church and then 
the ten toes is after the church. Um, but the prophecy again goes beyond the near future to the far long-term fulfillment of the final ten-nation confederacy that will turn over their power and authority to the Antichrist as well as the mother of harlots, the Catholic Church of Rome in Revelation 17, 18, and 19 is the Battle of Armageddon. It's pretty hard to miss Rome. She's on seven hills. That's her address. And there is no one more powerful, more wealthy than her. She became wealthy through confiscating and destroying everybody who stood against her. They wouldn't bow against her. Many of them were Christians. She is the harlot. The Bible is very, very, very clear. The emphasis, notice, in 23, in the last day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheltiel, says the Lord, and will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. Again, the emphasis, the context in that day, the last days. Zerubbabel will be God's servant. We spoke about the two witnesses that the Bible speaks about that will be coming against the Antichrist. And they will be giving them a bad time. They will not be able to be touched. They'll be able to bring down fire from heaven, destroy whoever, whatever it is. There's God's witnesses until God gives them over to the Antichrist and he will overcome them and kill them. And they will lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three days. And um, the whole world will be observing and throwing a big party. They will be sending gifts to one another, it says. And at the end of the third day, the Spirit of God will enter these two men. And they will ascend up to heaven. Now, these two men, we uh, went through it this morning. There are only two men that have not died physically in all of history that we know of. One is Enoch. He, Enoch walked with God. He was not for God took him. And the second is Elijah. He went up in the whirlwind. And Elisha got a double portion of Elijah. <laughs> um, Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man to die, and after this a judgment. So we went strictly by that verse and that principle of Hebrews 9.27. I would put my money on Elijah and Enoch because they haven't died. It doesn't mean I'm right. I'm just trying to use the scriptures and the logic of it. But here, Zerubbabel is said to have a particular work in the last days. Could he be one of them? Could be. Elijah is an ace in the hole. He's for sure, Malachi 4, 5 says. Okay? Zerubbabel could be it. Um, John the Beloved is said in the book of Revelation to have a work in the last days also. Some believe maybe Moses because um, the uh, miracles that they perform of shutting the rains and um, 
um, turning the waters into blood and being able to plague the earth with whatever they desire, they believe maybe Moses. Whoever it may be, it could be Elijah, Daffy Duck, or Donald Duck. It doesn't really matter. Elijah is one for sure. Enoch is a top candidate because he hasn't died. But whoever it is, there's going to be two witnesses, and they are just going to give the Antichrist a run for his money. But then the judgment that will come upon them and the festivities of the world. Now we can see the, um, the celebration of uh, the world that's becoming more uncivilized, more uh, anarchical, more self-will, more global. We see it becoming more animate, more hostile towards those who are not. And so we can very easily see now that which we could never imagine, just imagine, but we couldn't see how it was all going to come about. But the last 10 years, everything has been put on lightning speed. The problems of the world, ladies and gentlemen, are exactly that. They are not regional. They are not national. They are global. And that's exactly what the scriptures prophesied from the beginning. I used to teach about the last days. Now I am living in the last days. When I first was born again in 73, I believed Jesus was coming very, very soon. And I used to teach about it when America was rather safe, rather civil. Well, we've come a long ways. Now we see things that have taken place that I could have never imagined would have been allowed, let alone tolerated, by the politicians, by judges, by the Congress, by the Senate, even by presidents. And so you and I are citizens of heaven first. I thank God for America. I wasn't born in this country. Everything I have is because of the greatness of America by the grace of God. And it's heartbreaking to see what's happened to our country. But again, God has been merciful. He's given us a window time. A time to preach. A time to see people come into the kingdom. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. Not in this world. And so... The emphasis again in that day, Zerubbabel will be made like a signet ring. A signet ring, sonship, ownership, authority, and honor. Many of the kings, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, uh, all of them, Darius, they would sign with the rings. And uh, uh, Jezebel did the same thing when she set up uh, Nabal to be accused falsely and be stoned to death. And so that signet ring, he's going to have some authority, some power, some position, some work in the future. What it is, we'll find out. If it's one of the two, great. If not, it doesn't really matter. And by the way, Zerubbabel is found in the genealogy of Jesus Christ because he is in the Davidic line in Matthew 1.12 and in Luke 3.27.
to demonstrate that both Mary and Joseph were in the line of David. One's an ascension, the other one's a dissension. One goes through Solomon, the other one through Nathan, because Coniah, Jeconiah, was cursed. But they both had the right to the throne. But since Joseph was not the father, it doesn't really matter that Coniah was cursed there, because it's through Mary. And the Holy Spirit conceived in her. So there's no problem. The genealogy is pure altogether. I love the way the scriptures just line themselves up. I don't care what book you study. What book can you read? In so many different continents has been written by different authors. And they all hit exactly on the same point, And yet they're separated through hundreds of years and even some thousands. That's why it's called the Word of God, ladies and gentlemen. This book is not just a book. This book is the Word of God. God's revelation of His love, His mercy, His plan for the world. The thing that is the foremost important in His mind and heart is your salvation, that you repent from your sins, that He might direct and guide and be the one to bless your life. Lord, thank you for your grace and love your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for your word, Lord, and for your mercy over our life. I pray for every person here tonight, and I thank you for them. I pray for the young ladies, Lord, that you have your hand upon them. You make them godly. You just protect them. For the young men that are single, that you would also protect them, and they would obey you and walk with you honorably. For all of us who are married, Lord, that we just honor you in all things. And as a church, we just come together to worship you and to pray for those that are lost, our family, our friends, and those that you bring to us in the street at work, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the Internet. The same goes for you. If you believe that you're a sinner, it's by the grace of God, by the work of the Spirit of God. If you desire to repent and ask Him to forgive you, He's here to save you right now. This is your prayer of repentance, and He's going to do exactly that. This is your prayer to Him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.